the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, we are bringing you the fourth interview in remembrance of Peter Lawler, my late mentor. I would like to introduce to you Mark Henry, who was a friend and collaborator of Peter's, who knows more about Peter's life than I do, and we will be getting into some stories about that later and who is responsible for my own love and interest for Whit Stillman's comedies, which, as everybody knows, at the foundation and among our audience is one of our faiblesses. Sir, thank you very much for joining me. I'm glad that you could find the time to do this. I'm looking forward to the conversation. But first of all, please introduce yourself for our audience. Well, thank you, Titus, very much. It's good to be here. I'm Mark Henry, and I'm currently the president of the Arthur N. Roop Foundation in Santa Barbara, California. Although people who have known me in my life would find it very funny that I'm in California, since I'm about as far from a Californian as you can possibly be. Grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, got fancy degrees at Dartmouth, Cambridge, and Harvard, and then worked for 17 years at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, ISI, in Wilmington, Delaware. And it was really there that Peter Lawler was a big part of my life, and I still sorely, sorely miss him. He, his death was truly untimely. I should say at ISI, I had responsibilities for many things. I was responsible for the ISI Honors Program, which was sort of an elite program for undergraduates that started with a week-long program in the summer. I was also responsible for the Graduate Fellowships Program. I was the editor of the Intercollegiate Review, which was the main organ of ISI, and I was the senior editor of Modern Age, the quarterly that was a subscription-based journal and a few other things, a few other book projects and elements there. My title at the end was Chief Academic Officer and Senior Vice President, and that's basically what I was doing. And your work there has not been forgotten. In our first interview in the series, Professor Pat Denin remembered fondly your programs there, which is also how he got to befriend Peter Lawler and enjoy the roller coaster ride that was conversation and studying with him. This is of specific interest to me, partly because I am now a contributor to modern age and a great admirer of this facet of conservatism that is frankly openly elitist within the context of America. It's a desire to spread to any interested audience serious thinking and wit along with insight about all important matters of political and human affairs. This appeals to me greatly. It's what, in the way in which podcasting allows for it, we try to do at the foundation or through college lectures and other venues. But this is still a digital America that's hard to map and very hard to navigate through. Whereas I think in your work, you had institutional success and all sorts of ideas and achievements that prove that there is a side of conservatism that is deeply, truly and seriously interested intellectually and politically in study. And I think the honors program is such a good example of that. So please tell me about it. Well, the idea was that we would seek out the very best students, and that ended up being disproportionately from the Ivy League, but also you know, unique talents elsewhere that could be found. And we would basically bring them together with very fine faculty, interesting faculty. And the summer part of the program was one week long. And it was the way that I often described it is that we weren't bringing faculty to a student program. We were bringing students to a faculty party. 
And so it was sort of a faculty symposium that was happening that involved the students. And that was the spirit we were going for. The faculty to student ratio that we tried to maintain, although it was very difficult and very expensive, was one to two. We would have one faculty member for every two students so that it would be visibly the case that the faculty were a part of the total group and the students were part of the group together with the faculty. The rules of the game were that the faculty had to come for the entire week. The students, of course, were there for the week, and we had all meals together, and we had presentations and discussions throughout the day, and then dinner together, and then hospitality, and the hospitality in true symposium-like fashion frequently went till two in the morning. And every morning at eight o'clock, everyone was up again eagerly to get to breakfast and then to the next lecture. So the form worked marvelously if you like that sort of thing. For some students, especially on the sort of meritocratic hamster wheel, and it was often experienced this way by, you know, even Harvard kids, as this is what they thought college was going to be because, you know, it's not talking about football games or contemporary politics at two in the morning. You're actually talking about real substantive intellectual questions and having fun, having joy with it, the delight of intellectual inquiry. In a certain sense, the way to understand what ISI meant or what the institution was really for was to seed the academy with conservative-minded people. In a sense, what we were showing to students is that this is what academics can do and be. These are models that we're presenting to you and these faculty members, and they are at least as interesting and at least as smart as any of the professors you're having at your fancy college. That was the proposition. From the faculty side, it was actually, after a slow startup, say, in the mid-90s, faculty were easy to get to the program, which was, you know, a whole week in the life of a family man is asking quite a lot for really very little money. But they came because they were the sort of liberal arts professors that were in it for this purpose. You know, the reason they had gone into an academic vocation or discovered an academic vocation was precisely for the headiness of intellectual inquiry as, you know, one of the highest human goods. And they were presented then with students who wanted to engage them. This is what they signed up for. So it was a tremendous delight. We had many amazing students come through. Many did go into the academy, many, many more. Of course, despite my best efforts to keep them from going into law school, did go to law school and clerked for Supreme Court justices and circuit court judges and the whole thing. I hope, and I think it's the case, that this experience, which then had other programmatic elements through their honors year, got them to understand the capaciousness of the conservative intellectual tradition. You know, the conservative intellectuals weren't what they see on Fox News. They weren't even just what they read in National Review. But there was an entire universe of things that could be thought about and intellectual concepts that conservatives had been working on for decades that actually spoke to the problems of the day. And I would say that in this mix, the honors program mix, Peter Lawler was for me at the very center because he was constantly learning new things, constantly reflecting on the matters of the day, constantly in touch with popular culture, far more than I am or was, and able to relate to students in a genuinely open and interested way. And students responded to that. 
I would say Peter, together with Daniel J. Mahoney, Dan Mahoney from Assumption College, were really at the center of the program in the 17 years that I was involved in it. And indeed, Dan Mahoney will join us on the podcast next week. I should say that Dan Mahoney was labeled by Peter Lawler, Dan, Dan, the Biblioman, because <laughs> Dan Mahoney has read every book, period. <laughs> and can give you a summary of it in a very intelligent summary. And he was never caught out. He knew the literature on absolutely everything. Yes, that's right. Peter would always say that he discovered such and such an author from Dan. And I have to say, I just read uh, Mr. Mahoney's new essay in Law and Liberty about the catastrophe of France in 1940. And I've already added an author to my reading list. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> I think you're right. You get to something that speaks very vividly to me. In a way, we say with uh, Socrates in Plato's Phaedrus that, in a sense, mania is the highest form of moderation. If you understand by that, something like what you were saying, the headiness and the charm of the liberal arts, the study of the most wonderful possibilities open to our human capacities. And Peter was a lifelong defender and, of course, practitioner of the liberal arts of teaching to anyone who is interested and has the capacity to learn what it is that is available to us as human beings through the great books and through the experiences they clarify for us as human beings. I would say that the teaching aspect brings out the central virtue of Peter Lawler, which was friendship, as Aristotle would say, not simply a business advantage and it's not simply an elective affinity as Goethe would say it's also friendship because we share a love of truth we share a love of knowledge we share a love of studying important things that speak to us because we are human and they are the highest possibilities of human being and sharing that with young people and with a new generation in a way is the grandest most extraordinary thing about conservatism because whether we like it or not, we now have, strangely enough, sole possession of the liberal arts, of love, of our great inheritance and our great tradition. No, it's true. And Peter, I have to say that I think I'm somewhere between 10 and 15 years younger than Peter. And as I got older, one of the things that struck me was what a truly exceptional man he was, because even though he was older than I, he was still able to have the kind of youthfulness. There's a certain way of connecting to uh, young people in their Socratic quest that he was able to maintain at an age greater than my own. And I pride myself, perhaps flatter myself, that I was pretty good at that myself as a younger man. But as I aged, I found it harder. But he was still able to make that sort of connection of philosophical friendship, even in late middle age, in a way that students did respond to. The other thing I think which is true about him, and I suppose I should mention a little bit about his background, it's really quite fascinating. I'm not really sure what to make of it. But I did once ask him about, you know, where he's from, what, what his family's like, and those sorts of things. And one fact about him that I think actually did make sense to me or help me understand him better was that in his household in Rome, Georgia, he was married to his wife, Rita. He had one daughter. And another member of the household was, if I'm recalling correctly, Rita's sister, who had Down syndrome. And so he, that was simply part of his family. 
And, you know, occasionally there would be something that would happen. She would wander down to the fire station and down the road from where they lived and the firemen would bring her back and um, that sort of thing. But there was no condescension or anything. It was just she was another human being and part of his family. And there was something about the recognition of human dignity. And I think a lot of his bioethics work reflects the fact that, you know, it's not our intellectual capacities that make us human. It's that we are made in the image and likeness of God. This is his sister-in-law, is as much a human being and has as much dignity as anybody else does. And I really do think that in the intellectual life and the academic life, there really is a way in which as you go further and further, you know fewer and fewer people who aren't just really, really smart. And your friendship group is all about smartness. <laughs> and Peter hung out with very, very smart people and had their respect, and he respected them. But he also respected very ordinary people. He really did have a group that he met with at Waffle House or at Panera Bread. When Panera Bread finally arrived in Rome, Georgia, he was very happy about that. It was very classy. But he would hang out with business class golfing men. He would uh, hang out with all sorts of people. And I really don't think many academics do that. And I think that that put him in touch with America in a way that's very uncommon, but also did reflect a fundamentally Christian understanding of human dignity. Yeah, I think that's right. And it is in cases like this when we see that other people are also human that we realize just how important Christianity is in our lives. And I'm sure that very many people who do not go to church or don't even think of themselves as Christians could pause and notice that we accord everyone human dignity, that whatever ideology or political positions we might take, we have certain instincts, we have certain immediate reactions, and a certain love of human goodness and of humanity flows out of us when we see people. And it doesn't matter whether they are on top of the meritocracy pyramid or they're ordinary people or what have you. Indeed, in a way, sometimes it's precisely with the people who are most misfortunate in one sense that we realize that in another sense they're human beings just like us. It is the very juxtaposition, jarring as it is, that shows to us how much Christianity means to us, what it means to believe that everyone is made in the image of God. You're right that it somehow undergirded Peter's thinking about dignity. It gave him serenity and assurance, and it made him at home more or less with anyone, since he didn't expect too much from being at home. He liked to say that we are wanderers and wanderers. We wonder about all the things that we might apply our cognitive powers to, but at the same time, we wander through this world without finding anything that is fully satisfying to our mortality, to our fear of death, to our intimations, that there has to be more than what is available to us. He was free from snobbery as he was free from resentment, which indeed is not the typical portrait of an academic. I'm sorry to say that about academics, and some of my best friends are academics, but I think everyone knows what this means. And I think this is why Peter was so able and so interested in what young people are thinking about, what pop culture is going on about, even and especially when it involved a lot of people with whose opinions he did not much agree. Well, yeah, I'm glad you point out, there, I would say generosity. There was an extraordinary generosity to Peter. And that reflects, I think, what we were trying to do with the honors program. I often thought of ISI as essentially a gift economy. There was an exchange of gifts occurring, and we were encouraging that gift economy. 
that's really what happens. You give to someone else your best thoughts about something, and you give to the other person the respect of listening carefully to what they're saying and appreciating it and trying to shape it or understand it in your terms. And this exchange of gifts was at the center of the honors program, and it came very, very naturally to Peter. I should say probably that the first time I ever heard about Peter Lawler was sometime in the early 1990s when I was still in grad school at Harvard and someone suggested that there was this Catholic Straussian that you might you know, appreciate named Peter Lawler. And I looked up some of his articles and I have to say that when I read the articles, I thought, well, this is just crazy. <laughs> this is sort of Straussian stuff gone haywire. Because I, you know, then was a student of Harvey Mansfield and a more, I guess, orthodox Straussian, and this was sort of crazy stuff. Then, when I finally met him in 1997, my first year at ISI, I sort of did a 180 on that because listening to him, hearing him in his own voice live, really made me suddenly understand the irony. And perhaps I'm obtuse. Doubtless I am obtuse. Because sometimes, you know, you read something and you don't recognize the irony in the writing. I remember this particularly from John Henry Newman. He's incredibly witty. But when you're first reading Newman, it's this ponderous 19th century gorgeous prose. And you're not really picking up that, you know, this entire page was actually sarcasm. And so similarly, the ironic dimensions of Peter's thinking were vividly on display in the oral presentations. And whenever I would edit a piece by him, I had to take extraordinary care. And it sometimes took two days for me to actually get his pieces to the point where I was happy with them for the Intercollegiate Review. It wasn't so much that I had to edit any, you know, it wasn't bad prose. It was that to be able to sort of formalize it enough that you were sure that you were signaling what was in earnest and what was meant in irony was really hard work. Uh, <laughs> but I did my best. And on the editing side, the only disagreement we ever had was his promiscuous use of so. He likes starting rather than therefore or thus. It was always only ever so. And we sort of compromised at some point in which I'd allow him one or two so's in a piece, and that was enough for him. But, uh, <laughs> but it was seeing him in action that suddenly allowed me to read him better. That was a revelation to me. The same thing, by the way, happened. This is an aside. I'm good at asides. I'm a great. This <laughs> an aside. I once heard Andrew Lytle give a talk, the Southern Agrarian Andrew Nelson Lytle. And it was only after reading Andrew Nelson Lytle that I was able to read Faulkner because there's an orality in Faulkner that I just found him incomprehensible. But then, you know, basically, if you try to read it as if Andrew Nelson Lytle was reading it with his Southern accent, it all became clear. So I do hope that your listeners can listen to some of Peter's online talks as well as read what he's written, because for me, at least, obtuse that I am, that was a revelation. So I guess I changed my mind. I, I suddenly realized not only was he not just some crazed lunatic Straussian, but I became quite convinced that his teaching style corresponded to my learning style. Yes, he once said of someone else. I learned an enormous amount from him, and I really, even talking about him now, I, I almost get a little choked up because, you know, there were, these, there were certain moments in the relationship that uh, are very special to me. Because, you know, when we first met, I was still a youngish man, not quite, but almost fresh out of grad school, and still sort of wanting to win the approbation of professors and that sort of thing that you do when you're a young academic. 
And one of the turning points in our relationship was when I said, yes, I, you know, I read that piece, but I think I disagree with you. And he wrote back, this was, of course, email exchange, essentially, now I trust you. <laughs> or now, you know, now I respect you. So I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was suddenly because you disagreed with me on this, I actually now have great respect for you because now I know that you're being totally honest with me. And it wasn't like he was testing me. It was just an expression of confidence. And we were very close in our projects for a very long time. And I do miss him. There's something wonderful about this capacity for friendship that indeed must involve a lot of irony. And there is nothing unpleasant. It's just that human affairs involve many things, including quite a lot of laughter and some disagreement. And he was quite able to deal with these things without acrimony. It's uh, remarkable that he could find so much on the upside of being human, especially as a conservative, when we are more or less, by profession of faith, required to be doomy and gloomy. Peter was uniquely unsuited for doom and gloom, and it seems that that's why he was such a success, not just as a conservative, but as an ambassador of conservatism everywhere else in America. Listening to you, I think of some of my own experiences with him that were fondly similar, that he would gently mock me that as an Orthodox Straussian, I was taught to write without drawing conclusions. And he corrected that. <laughs> Although I have to say that my editor still continued the work. There was a combination of mockery and instilling of confidence in his writing. He would not tell me that I screwed up some piece of writing at Postmodern Conservative, but he would just say something like, make it readable. Or typical Lawler answer was, I have neither the time nor the intelligence to edit you. Just look this up again and send it to me. And <laughs> suddenly he knew everything I had to do to pass muster. And that at the same time, he really and truly was confident that I had something serious to say there, that uh, he could trust me to work out by my own powers without uh, needing my hand be held. He was remarkably laissez-faire without ever compromising on standards. I should say, by the way, speaking of mockery, I never, perhaps because I was only occasionally on the on the on the front end of that, the mockery. It was never mordant. It never really drew blood. That was also one of the remarkable things about his generous spirit. He would deprecate your position, perhaps, but I never felt that it stung. And so, in my case, I think he might once have referred to me as, you know, America's leading theorist of conservative nostalgia. Uh, <laughs> uh, and at a certain point in one of the talks, and again, it was a throwaway line. There were so many throwaway lines that he just did on the fly. One of the examples of this was a reference absolutely to me in the room, as we have on the one hand, you know, among conservatives, these libertarian, dynamist, uh, post-humanist-oriented people, and he would proceed to give a lengthy discussion of why that's not right. But then on the other hand, we have the it takes a medieval village people, which is a reference to me. That was such a beautiful phrase. It takes a village. It takes a medieval village. Uh, it takes a medieval village people. <laughs> so even, of course, the audience, the students roared in laughter because uh, it's it's me. And so he he thought that you know there there wasn't any going back, as others of your interlocutors have said that, that things are getting both better and worse at the same time. And in a sense, I think Peter's presence in the ISI mix, where there's sort of a overweighting of Spenglerian gloom in ISI's intellectual circles, he was the corrective, an important corrective, because he saw the reasons for Spenglerian gloom. But he also did see other things, and he wanted to make sure that... Uh, you know, one of his deepest insights was that the actual conservative is attempting to conserve the whole truth about man. 
under modern conditions, there's this kind of abstraction into a cartoon, which we then run with. So there is a way in which a conservative vocation is to correct this exaggeration or abstraction with the things that are left out from liberal theory. But on the other hand, there's something true about human uniqueness, about the greatness of man that the liberals are capturing in a you know, not quite perfect way, but there's something that we can't lose sight of. And so that was a corrective that I welcomed because it was a corrective of my own deformation, perhaps. Yeah, it's inevitable that we have a certain proudful attachment to our opinions and to our ideas, and those things are really hard to budge. It's very easy to turn argument into argument. Peter's humor seemed to have a way of disarming that, and I think even more so in person than in print. There's some things you can do with humor in print, but in person, as you said, there's also reading the room. If everybody's laughing, it's possible that they are on to something that is obvious. And it makes it easier to face up to it because it's part of reality. It's part of necessity. It's just there. Nothing to take offense at. It's part of Peter's realism, as he would describe his position. There are some things about us that are individualistic, libertarian, but there are other things about us that are not. And those ones weigh more ultimately. But they don't weigh more immediately. He had a very complicated position summarized in a phrase he loved very much, using libertarian means for non-libertarian ends. We have to deal with the situation as it is and make the best of it, but keep in mind that it's serving purposes that are going to take some time to serve. And one thing I learned from Peter is that the strangest thing about American conservatism is that it's morally upside down in the sense that the libertarians who seem like sometimes brats, I don't want to say insulting things about them, I just mean that they seem to be in a hurry. They'll change institutions or laws or what have you to get to that quota of individual freedom without which they can't be happy in the morning. But in fact, they are quite confident of the future and in the essential sense patient. Things come, things go, waves come and pass, but they'll win in the end, they think. Whereas it is the people who are on the conservative traditionalist side who should be patient since they've seen it all before, so to speak. You could say that Peter's Catholicism gave him this idea that the world is older than America, for example, that things come and things go. If you're a Christian, you have, in a sense, seen it all. Empires come and go. But in fact, the traditionalists are not at all patient. They do not have this strange view that Peter had that we need libertarian means in our times, given our situation, for the ends that we have always pursued and everyone like us has always pursued since happiness is, is more tied up with our traditions from family and friendship to intellectual concerns, studies, up to philosophy and theology. And so he seemed to embody the right attitude, a certain patience with immediate concerns, a certain patience with quarrels of the day, and the sorts of ideas that perhaps not on a national level, but at a personal level, we feel very proud about and unyielding. And he tried to kid people out of some of this harshness, really. I certainly learned a lot from his gentility. The most important of his lessons was that you have to make friends. You have to reassure people that you're actually serious about what they're saying to you and you take them seriously as people. You're neither reducing them to an argument you want to refute, nor are you reducing them to a kind of creature that doesn't even matter. He had an uncanny ability to size up a person, just like he had an ability to read a room. 
and these things are perhaps hard to teach, but they're very important to know that they exist. It's something that we need in our teachers, in our guides, and something that we hope to achieve as friends and in our various relations. It's being relational, as he liked to say, and it's the evidence that individualism isn't really enough, that in any number of situations, small or great, crucial or everyday, you need to really pay attention to other human beings. You need to like to pay attention to them, and you need to see what's great and what's miserable in human life. Well, yeah, and I, and I actually think that one of the effects of having Peter as a friend was that you were hearing from him, don't take yourself too seriously. But it was sort of a joshing, which was very helpful for overcoming you know, intellectual and academic amor propre. And I think that that is how you generate genuine friendship. And, you know, one of the things about the ISI context in which I knew him was that, you know, if you came to an ISI conference, it wasn't going to go on your CV as something that was going to help you get tenure or get a promotion in the academy. There was no student evaluations. There were none of the things about getting ahead in the academy. It wasn't actually going to, you know, improve your standing with the APSA. That it was really only for its own sake. And ISI did, in its golden age, have a genuine concern with people as people. And having made friends with you, we you know we are interested in you as a human being in your totality. And part of that actually is sort of joshing you out of being all so high and mighty about your particular position. You know, academics have to defend their intellectual positions. But if you're in a situation where, sure, you want to defend your intellectual position, but you know you're among friends, then a little joshing is in order. And Peter was very good at that. I, I sort of wanted to go back and uh, tell you a little bit more about his background as I understand it. You know, I once asked him about his family, where he grew up, and he, you know, he grew up in the D.C. suburbs, which was a revelation to me because I sort of had him pegged as someone Southern, because he has sort of a Southern accent, but not quite. And he grew up in a very unique family because his father was a very unique man, an orphan in Pittsburgh at a Franciscan orphanage. Actually, his father and his father's brother were both at this Franciscan orphanage in the 1930s, I suppose, when World War II came around. And his father signed up, and he had, I guess it was good language skills, and he sort of ended up in kind of the intelligence area and in the OSS. And so after the war, he moved from the OSS into the CIA, eventually rose very high. Peter said something about he, he sort of ran all the American spies in Latin America. And in fact, it was he was so high that he was, you know, a name that was talked about sometimes for CIA director. But he didn't have a college degree because he had moved directly from the Franciscan orphanage high school into the service and then into the CIA. And it was simply not something you could do to have somebody without a college degree as the CIA director. So he rose far higher than anyone without a college degree could be conceived to rise. And that was what he did for his life. And that was a very strange way to grow up. You know, his father sometimes went away for uh, periods of time and would not be able to say about anything where he had been or why. His father could never talk about his work. That was how he grew up. His father also, and this is the other remarkable thing, 
since you couldn't bring any work home, being the CIA. And his father also suffered from insomnia most of his life. And so in his spare time, his Latin was so good that he was one of the three general editors of the Catholic University of America Fathers of the Church translation series. And so that's what this high-ranking CIA guy was doing at night. And so that's the family he grew up in. You know, his father passed away at some point during our relationship, and Peter was saying that it was sort of remarkable towards the end because, because uh, you know, he was uh, getting demented and, you know, they would say something and that would spur a memory for his father, like something about a Red Robin Inn or something like this. And his father said, oh, yeah, I once interrogated somebody in a Red Robin Inn <laughs> in Arizona. And, you know... <laughs> And, and, and Peter had no hadn't the slightest idea his father had ever been in Arizona, but this is who his father was. I should say also, by the way, that his father's brother stayed with the Franciscans and became a Franciscan priest, and his name, I believe, was Ron Lawler. He was a seminary professor for the Capuchin Franciscans in western Pennsylvania, and Archbishop Chaput, who's a Capuchin, in a memorial remembrance, credits Ron Lawler as being his greatest intellectual influence, the man who shaped his thought more than any other. So it's quite a family. Peter also has two brothers. One brother is some sort of super-duper science guy, very, very smart, and then he has another brother in high levels of finance. So he's far and away the least successful of his brothers. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but it's a remarkable family. And I do think that there's something about the Catholicism of the 1950s, Catholic intellectual world of the 1950s and into the 60s that persisted longer in some places than others. That is decisively the spiritual world out of which Peter came. That is part of what I resonated with in Peter. The Catholicism that had made its peace with America, sort of the John Courtney Murray Catholicism, but also a Catholicism which still was so deeply into the Catholic tradition that it read Murray in a different way than, for example, the modern Catholic neocons had read Murray. The modern Catholic neocons read Murray as the reconciliation, where we basically make our peace and sort of say, well, America's got these things right. And it wasn't that. No, it was Articles of Peace. Uh, not Articles of Faith, with a, <laughs> a distinct understanding that there are some problems here still. It's not a perfect situation, and that the tradition has something to say as a corrective. There was a little book of essays on John Courtney Murray sometime in the mid-90s that Peter contributed to, and I would say that Peter's contribution to that was probably the most conservative, because it was actually suggesting that even a conservative reading of John Courtney Murray might not be enough. So that was, I think, the spiritual world out of which he came. He went to Allentown College of St. Francis de Sales. I'm not sure why. There might have been some thought of a vocation to the priesthood at the time. It was a really undistinguished Catholic college now called de Sales. University in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and he then did a PhD at the University of Virginia, and he was once asked what was sort of the decisive turning point in his intellectual trajectory, the most important professor in his life, and he chuckled because he said that the most important professor in his life was also the worst professor he'd ever seen, <laughs> which was Delba Winthrop who was at the University of Virginia for a certain time, and Peter at that time was actually studying political science, kind of international relations, kind of the CIA sort of thing. But you had to take a political theory course in the grad school. There was this political theory survey, and you could take Dante Germino, who had like 300 people signed up for his section, or Delba Winthrop was offering the other section, and about eight people had signed up for her. Uh, <laughs> 
And so Peters thought, I got to see why she's so unpopular. And he went and she basically sat behind her desk, read verbatim from her, you know, 30 pages of text in a monotone voice. But he realized she was saying smart things. And so this dramatically changed his life, got him onto the political theory thing. It's a very funny story. I had never heard anything about this before. I recently reread Postmodernism Rightly Understood since I'm doing this series. It was an opportunity to read his books again. And in the acknowledgments, he mentions Delba Winthrop as the person who turned around his life by turning him to the study of political philosophy. And I had no idea she was such a bad teacher. I only knew that she was a distinguished scholar with her husband, Harvey Mansfield. In a way, it makes perfect sense. It uh, must have appealed to the Catholic scholastic tradition, among other things. And of course, Peter sends for whether somebody had something to say. To look at the novelists, he loved Walker Percy so much, even though he was a mediocre novelist, because he had something to say. He says that his great friend Shelby Foote was a much better stylist, much better writer of English, but he had nothing to say until he found the Civil War. So also in this case, Delpa Winthrop certainly had something to say. I'm very glad and very grateful that you uh, have all these stories to share. He was such an interesting man, and uh, I did not uh, realize either that he came from this uh, strange background. It's a wonderful family, and the CIA is involved. What a story. (laughs) I would like to turn to the book you did with Peter Lawler about Whit Stillman, another ironic conservative, a man who likes comedy rather more than tragedy, and gently tries to push people into accepting that this is the situation we live with now. We would perhaps sometimes as conservatives prefer more of a Jane Austen situation, but Jane Austen in our times is Whit Stillman. So yes, the films of Whit Stillman, that was a project that sort of generated in the latest 1990s when the third Stillman film came out. And it was one of these things, I had been at Harvard when the first one came out, Metropolitan, and I thought, wow. There were phrases in the movie that sounded like ISI people. Uh, You know, when Nick says something to the effect of we're the worst generation since the Protestant Reformation, that's the kind of thing that you might hear one in the morning at an ISI honors program. And there were certain kinds of attitudes and thoughts that were sort of in the ISI matrix of thinking. And I thought, this is very strange. How can this person have made this movie that is capturing this very, you know, not a particularly mainstream conservative sensibility? You know, he must have encountered someone like this. Plus, it was a good movie. I then, you know, saw Barcelona when that came out, and I thought, you know, there's something about this movie that's quite conservative, and I sort of began developing thoughts about that matter and recommending it. And then The Last Days of Disco came out, and at an honors program, it was Ashland, Oregon. One afternoon, as we were having hospitality, we had a discussion, and all of a sudden, there were several of the faculty and I were exploring the conservative themes in these films. And sort of then and there, I decided, this is something we can do. A symposium in the Intercollegiate Review on the films of Whit Stillman. Peter was one of those interlocutors in Ashland, Oregon, and so we set out to do that. And in the course of doing that, I learn things about Whit Stillman, and I think this is part of what coheres with Peter. Metropolitan takes place in a period where the debutante scene is in decline. It's a period where they're looking back to where things were better before for their social class. So there's a sense that things are pretty much reduced. That was one of the phrases in the film. 
Barcelona takes place explicitly in the last decade of the Cold War. So it's something's coming to an end. And of course, the last days of disco is about the end of the disco craze. So there's a sense that uh, the events in each film are unfolding in the twilight of something. There's also this nostalgic dimension to it, a backward looking. And yet they're comedies. And I think that that is in the heart of what Stillman's art is illustrating. As I've said somewhere else, to look into the past and see the good through rose-colored glasses is nevertheless to see the good. If the things that you're seeing that are good in the past really are human goods, then they can never be entirely gone. They must always remain a human possibility. And that is a source of hope and a source of inspiration and a source of consolation. It turns out that the world is comic, not tragic, because even though you may lose a certain dimension of the good in your current period, that certain good is not completely inaccessible. In fact, it must sort of return eventually because the human good will return. That's the spirit illustrated in Stillman's films. So in the course of that project of doing the issue of the Interclusure Review, which we then liked so much, we decided to expand it into a book. I actually got in touch with Stillman. I can't remember how. And he was very gracious and grateful for the attention. And I learned things about him that I had not known. You know, that he had actually done some writing for the American Spectator when he was right out of college. That he had lived in Philadelphia briefly with his uncle, who was also his godfather, a man named E. Digby Boltzell, a sociological historian at the University of Pennsylvania, who coined the term WASP. Uh, and <laughs> and also coined the term mainline churches. The mainline churches were the churches that had churches on the main line, a road in Philadelphia that goes out to the suburbs. And so he was the greatest uh, American historian of America's upper class, himself a Philadelphia gentleman. One of his books is titled Philadelphia Gentleman. And he was also a friend of John Lukács, the Hungarian-American historian who also lived outside of Philadelphia. Stillman actually went to lunch several times with John Lukács. This was a sort of an incredible aha moment for me. It's like, so that's, that's where Nick Smith's stuff is coming from. That's where the UHB, the urban haute bourgeoisie, is coming from. He actually learned from John Lukács something about his experience, and from Digby Boltzell as well. So there was something in Stillman that was more in tune with the conservative movement than I thought, it happened that while I was working on the book, I also took a phone call from George H. Nash, the historian of the American conservative intellectual movement. And we were catching up on this and that, and he asked what I was working on. And I said, well, I'm working on this book about the films of Whit Stillman. And George said, wait, Whit Stillman, the filmmaker? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, well, but I know him. <laughs> in fact, we're very good friends. It turns out that they, in fact, are very good friends because George H. Nash was a tutor at the Harvard House when he was in grad school and doing his Ph.D. at the time that Stillman was an undergraduate at Harvard. And Stillman and George Nash knew each other. 
And Stillman tells a story somewhere, either he told it somewhere or he told it to me, that sometime during his Harvard years, he went to Mexico. And this was something that well-heeled young people did to go experience authenticity and, you know, the third world and all that sort of thing. And he was at a village festival one night and they were playing mariachi music or whatever. And the young women were all dressed up in pink taffeta dresses and in their very fine and it was all a dance was happening. Well, Stillman thought at first that here it is, this is real authenticity. I'm seeing sort of authentic folk culture. But then he had a second thought that the pink taffeta dresses were very much like what the Pine Manor girls back in Cambridge, Massachusetts might wear to a formal dance at Harvard. That in fact, the thing which was deprecated among his peers in the early 1970s at Harvard as this, you know, loser fake culture uh, that we have here, which is sort of the old organization man, waspy thing, which is not authentic, and we want to get authentic, actually was an authentic culture, just as authentic as the pink taffeta dresses in Mexico. And so he said when he came back from Mexico, he had a very different opinion about the sort of things that George Nash was talking about in conversations in the dining hall. He sort of became more conservatively oriented at that point. Yeah, George Nash and he are actually quite good friends. Apparently they see each other pretty much any time Stillman's in New York and George is in New York, uh, possibly even annually. So the conservative bona fides are extraordinary. Now, having said that, I think that Stillman sort of goes out of his way to deny these things in public, because I sometimes worry that doomed bourgeois in love, essays on the films of Witt Stillman, our book, did nothing good for his career. I think we might have outed him too much as a conservative, and he's backpedaled a great deal in many, many public appearances to try to throw them off the trail. I've actually never met Witt Stillman in person. We've only had exchanges on email and maybe one phone call. But what's in the work is in the work. I think it reflects a truly conservative sensibility. I think that's right. And I have to say that in my peregrinations, it is almost always the case that the fans of Witt Stillman are conservatives. I don't think that is an accident, especially not over the decades. Indeed, Metropolitan is coming up on its 30th anniversary. We're going to have to do something about that. I remember uh, my friends at Baylor invited him there for a screening of his movies and evenings of conversation. And that's not just the conservative, but also Straussian department. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe our fault as conservatives is that we didn't pay for the next Witt Stillman movie, or we aren't doing it now. We aren't paying for the next ISI honors program, something on that scale, and with that character. It is the case that Witt Stillman is a friend of conservatism, and his movies are not just witty and mannered, and therefore immediately enjoyable, but they also point, as you said, to certain permanent features of the good. If you can notice these things, if you can understand that they are part of human nature, it's both reassuring and in a way even a guide. After his trilogy, Damsels in Distress, I think, is both his most comedic movie and his most practical, since it's not autobiographical in any sense. I think that he really and truly believes that if you could start a dance craze, you could reform American mores. That might seem silly or far-fetched, but of course, any conservative who takes seriously what we all believe would see that the most urgent problem in America is that mating and dating is now forbidden or lost as an art. It is not possible to ignore the fact that conservatives have managed to supervise an America in which 20-somethings are no longer married. 
that has never happened before. It's quite a shocking thing that people should notice, but it's the sort of thing that those of us who notice with Stillman would notice instead. So I think that the more far-fetched his comedies look, the more realistic they in fact are. They share in the same irony that one sees in Peter Lawler, although Peter was less nostalgic, strangely enough. A man so concerned with the past of philosophy and theology and political science and American history, he was not really nostalgic. It's strange. But still, they share the comic awareness that there was greatness and goodness in the past that we should never let go of, even when we can't get it all back or act on it immediately. I should say, by the way, that so Whit Stillman is also, I believe, a second cousin or first cousin once removed. I don't know how those things work, <laughs> but to Chauncey Stillman, who was you know, an heir of the Citibank fortune and um, a Catholic convert, who was also deeply involved with many conservative causes during his life. And I think that would be another source to Whit of this kind of intellectual universe that becomes represented on the screen. You know, in a certain sense, part of the elation of Metropolitan was actually just, some, you know, sort of, wow, yes, I know people like this, but I've never seen them on the screen before. You know, it is part of the function of literature, capture the reality of certain kinds of human beings, human types that are evident in the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm alive in the, in the year 2020, and uh, I'm a kind of type of which I know many, but we don't normally get onto the screen and nobody really knows about us unless you're in our little world. And so it was sort of a great elation to see that at first. I have to say that in the exercise of doing the book, there's extraordinary care taken by Stillman in his productions and in his writing. It's just astounding what he gets in there. You know, it's very funny. Metropolitan was nominated for Best Screenplay when it came out in 1990, but it lost the Oscar to Ghost. If you think for even a minute about the screenplay of Ghost and the screenplay of Metropolitan, it's one of the greatest injustices in Oscar history. Yes, no doubt about it. It's strange that somebody who is so witty, so insightful, so pleasing to look at, and who's also making movies on shoestring budgets, there's so much craft and so much invention in all this stuff, and love of filmmaking. Uh, as you said, these are human types that are recognizably American and very interesting in their own right. It's adding something to cinema that you wouldn't have otherwise, that we haven't had since Whit Stillman has gone into exile. You know, after Last Days of Disco, it took him 14 years to make Damsels in Distress, and after a couple of years, he managed to make Love and Friendship. There's the American Austin with an Austin adaptation, and uh, really nothing has followed. It's a sad thing, but you know, at the same time, Whit Stillman is still there. People could still fund his next project. It is perfectly possible to give the man the chance to fulfill his visions. It's hard to find somebody who is more tested than true over the years up to, as you said, Oscar nominations, recognizing his remarkable wit. I do think that the main problem with the 14 years that happened there was that he just couldn't get the money together to make a film. And that's you know, something that we don't think about perhaps as much as we should, that it's the people who finance films that get them made. And that it may, in fact, be a difficulty in the conservative world, although, frankly, we really don't want some conservative institution making conservative message films. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's not what Stillman's doing. Stillman's making art. He's making art that has philosophical sources in the conservative world. But that's not actually different from a filmmaker that's influenced by existentialism, making existentialist films. We don't try to look for this Sartrean phrase here and there in a film. We, we basically are recognizing that the film has this philosophical resonance and reflects this intellectual world. 
but it's also telling a story that's compelling. And I think that Stillman's stories are compelling. I think perhaps another connection, Peter Lawler, with Stillman is that it's clear in Barcelona especially that he does care about America. And I think he comes from, you know, a family with deep roots in America that has had a responsibility for things in America for a long time. And so he believes in the project and sees America as a great thing. And I think that that is something that's true with Peter as well. Was it Orestes Brownson who identified America as the greatest achievement in politics since the Roman Empire, and yet not the city of God? And I think that that's what the particularly Christian dimension of Peter brings to the table, that, you know, it's not the city of God. And so the maximalist claims of a certain kind of American exceptionalist aren't true. And yet we have to recognize the greatness of the project and the great goods it has made available, practically speaking. Yes, that's right. Peter's Catholicism gave him something of an outsider perspective and in a way a truer perspective because he both loved America and judged America with a good head on his shoulders, both as a patriot and as a professor of political science. We know from Tocqueville that it is very difficult to criticize America. Bellicosity is so much tied to patriotism that is a problem and perhaps that is partly why Peter was so given to irony and comic statements and the humorous demeanor that would disarm adversaries or adversative moods, let's call them. That is like with Stillman's comedies, putting people at their ease in a comic way. Nobody is being humiliated or harmed during a with Stillman comedy. It's not just reassuring, but it affirms human dignity through the way the movies are made. And as you said, it's because they are good movies, just like Peter's success depended on the fact that he was a good writer and a good teacher. It was not because he was a conservative or a Christian or a Southern teacher or writer. It's because he was good at it. And everything else was part of that. It was the way in which he was good at the things he was good at. That, uh, indeed, is the first and foremost requirement. Peter loved best Walker Percy of American artists. And Walker Percy admired most Flannery O'Connor, who said that it's got to be good writing. If it is not good fiction, it cannot be good American or good Christian fiction by definition. It doesn't matter how good your intentions are. It doesn't matter how pious you are. If you are no good at the arts, if you're no good at dealing with culture, then it's not going to work. And that's something that we have found very, very difficult to learn, strangely enough. The more successful conservatism has become, the least concerned it has become with culture and the arts and with respect for these achievements of talent and craft put together. It's a somewhat unfortunate matter, but there it is. We have to face it, and in as much as we are able to learn from the artists that do share in our patriotism and in our concern for the good and the beautiful, we can still deal with these matters. Yes. I should say, by the way, that I have a, an interpretation of Damsels in Distress, which I will not share with you, because if I did, it might be career-ending for Wits Tillman. <laughs> <laughs> a scratch might. It, w it would be, it will be, uh, career-ending for Wits Tillman. So there's a powerfully conservative message in that film, too, and your listeners should do their very best to try to decode it. Well, then, this is something we will have to keep for our private conversations and, indeed, leave our audience to also watch these movies as also to read Peter's books and, uh, as Peter would say, talk amongst yourselves. There's always a lot of discussion to do. There's always a lot of second thoughts and second guessing to think about what did he really mean here? How much am I understanding? How much can I follow? There is a lot of friendship and that means both the gift that Peter offered through his wit and his insight and also the competitiveness, the driving his interlocutors to try harder, to 
try for themselves to achieve the best that they can achieve. And I think that is therefore a very good conclusion for our conversation. Mr. Henry, thank you very much for joining me. This has been wonderful and insightful. I have to say there are all these things about Peter's life that I did not know about. They're just wonderful stories. I am deeply grateful. And perhaps another time we will do a conversation on with Stillman. Okay, I should say that ISI for many, many years was sort of the repository of the oral history of conservative intellectuals in America. And so it's wonderful to have an opportunity to share some of that with you. Peter, who again is, is sorely missed. Yes, indeed. We are remembering him and we will try our best through this series of podcasts to introduce him to a new generation who might find him as charming and as helpful as we have. Sir, all the best. Thank you.